Amen. Well, if you haven't already done so, you can open up your Bibles to Jude. Jude is the near the end, right next to Revelation. Small little letter, fourth smallest letter in the New Testament. Words kill and words give life. Words matter. And that's why on the eve or say the the time right before any major military conflict, usually a leader will rise up from that group and rally the troops. They will seek to inspire men to be willing to sacrifice their lives for the cause that they're fighting for. On August 22nd, 1864, Abraham Lincoln did that. He did that during the Civil War, a time when our country was being torn apart in what seemed like an endless war. And these are his words to the 166th Ohio Regiment. For the service you have done in this great struggle in which we are engaged, I present you sincere thanks for myself and the country. I almost always feel inclined when I happen to say anything to soldiers to impress upon them a few brief remarks the importance of success in this contest. It is not merely for today, but for all time to come that we should perpetuate for our children's children this great and free government, which we have enjoyed all of our lives. I beg you to remember this, not merely for my sake, but for yours. The nation is worth fighting for to secure such an inestimable jewel. Perhaps you'd be more familiar with Dwight D. Eisenhower's speech given June 6, 1944 on the eve of giving uh, of the invasion of Normandy as those troops were to sacrifice, many of them, their lives. The Battle of Normandy, he said this, You are about to embark on, a great, on the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over oppressed people of Europe, and the security for ourselves in a free world. And it's not just military leaders who have done this. Jesus did it. And the night before he was crucified, he met with his disciples and rallied them. He taught them. He taught them all that they needed to know, reminded them of what they needed to know of his soon impending departure. And Jude is a letter written in this same vein. It's really a call to arms. And, and with that call to arms, Jude is, is going to rally Christians and believers to fight for the truth, to contend earnestly for the faith. And yet before he does that, he is going to provide with them with words of comforting assurance, words that are designed to comfort them before the battle. And in fact, why they're in the battle, but it's designed to assure them. And the reason he can do this, these words are so assuring, is because unlike other battles where there are casualties, either men dying or, or being severely hurt, there are no casualties in this war because of what God has done. And that's what Jude wants Christians, wants you to know. That there, that he is going to, God is going to protect you through this. It, it doesn't mean that we live with a peacetime mentality, but it le- it means that we live 
in the perfect peace which God supplies even while we're in the midst of a spiritual warfare. The, the victory that is guaranteed is not by the strength of the church or the charisma or the power of any particular Christian, but it's in the strength that God provides. None will be lost. None of the Lord's children will be lost. All of us will be making it through. Now, let's just read Jude together. Oh, it's a relatively short letter. I don't know that I'll read it every week, but I think it's good in the start to just go ahead and read all the way through it. This morning, we'll be looking at just verses 1 and 2. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you that though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe and angels who do not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, the things which they, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. 
and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a powerfully, powerful letter this is, but yet very short. Now, before we look at these comforting assurances, I, I want to give us a little bit of an introduction to this letter. Right? Jude was written uh, likely before Second Peter and actually shares a lot of similarities with Second Peter. So some people see that one copied from the other, but it certainly seems like Jude is after Second Peter because Peter speaks about the false, the false teachers who would come. He speaks about them in the future tense. Jude speaks about them in the present tense. They're here. They're here right now. So there's a lot of similarities. We'll be going back and forth between Jude and Second Peter appropriately through through the series. But Jude was also likely written before the destruction of Jerusalem, AD 70, because he doesn't make mention of it at all. So likely it puts it somewhere in the late 60s, AD 60s, um, as when it was written. Now, who is the author of this letter? Who was it written by? Well, he tells us in the beginning, it's Jude. But who is this Jude? Well, first of all, I just have to remind you that, that this, this book of Jude follows the typical format for a New Testament letter. And they, unlike us, they put the author first. So the author's name appears first, then he relays to whom it's to, and then there's a typical greeting. And just like the Apostle Paul, Jude uses that greeting. He transforms it not just into a greeting, but actually into a prayer and expresses his wish for them as well. And he, and he expresses really great uh, assurances to us that comfort us in light of uh, the, the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. So the author is Jude. Right? That is the that is the really the English translation. The Greek translation will be Judas, not translation, but the Greek version would be Judas. The Hebrew version of the name is Judah. So it's the same name. It's just different, different versions, different languages. So most English Bibles use the title Jude. Uh, we think to separate it from Judas, Iscariot who betrayed the Lord. So they're trying to draw a, a distinction there. Although there was uh, a good Judas besides that, this one being one of them. Um, now Jude or Judas or Judah was a very popular name amongst Jews. So we find lots of them. Why were they so popular? Well, one is because you find that Judah was one of the sons of Jacob later named Israel, who became one of the tribes of Israel. From that tribe came King David, and from that tribe came the Messiah. So a very prominent tribe amongst the tribes of Israel. And so it was very popular from that standpoint. But it was also a popular name, particularly in this time period, because of another Judas, Judas Maccabeus. And then the Maccabean period is between the two testaments. And Judas Maccabeus... Uh, kind of led the revolt after his father died, led the revolt against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and was very successfully pushed him back, not totally uh, freeing Israel completely, but recapturing Jerusalem and, and uh, purifying the temple for a period of time. So he was very famous in Israeli history. And so a lot of fathers uh, and 
mothers named their sons after him, Judas. And so there's lots of Judases. There's actually six Judases in the New Testament. There's the infamous Judas Iscariot, an apostle, but the one who betrayed the Lord. Certainly that is not the Judas we're talking about here. Then there is Judas, also an apostle, but not Iscariot. That's what he's called, Judas, not Iscariot. Right? So you see how popular the name was? There were two of the apostles named Judas. That's how popular the name was. Um, this name, because, because um, it was so popular, because there was another Judas, he is also known as Thaddeus. Um, he, is, he is called the uh, son of James in Luke 6.16, 6, which I'll, I'll just note quickly here that, that in the King James Version, it inaccurately calls this Judas the brother of James. It's, uh, the better translation of that would be uh, son of James. Then there is Judas of Galilee. We don't know a whole lot about him, but he was the leader of a rebellion within Jerusalem, and he perished in that rebellion, and it went away. That was uh, part of in Gamaliel's, um, uh, not, it's one of the speeches given by the Jewish leaders on why they should just leave the apostles alone. That's in Acts 5. Then there's Judas of Damascus, someone we also don't know of, but also someone that would be aligned with believers. In Acts 9, after Paul met the, uh, the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and he was, he was blinded, he was led to the home of Judas of Damascus. And he stayed with Judas until um, he received sight and the Lord appeared to him. So again, we don't really know much about Judas of Damascus, but certainly all the Judases thus far are not good candidates for who this Judas is. Then there is Judas called Barsabbas, and we find him in Acts 15. He is one of the New Testament prophets that ministered not only in Jerusalem, but was sent uh, with, the, with the letter that uh, James and, and Peter wrote. They sent that to the church in Damascus uh, it, when, they were, when they were talking about whether you had to be circumcised to be saved or not. So Judas Barsabbas was sent along with them to communicate that letter and he is named among the New Testament prophets. But he also is not a good candidate for, we don't know little about him. And um, there have been, there, just church history has not attributed any kind of writings to him. That leaves one other Judas. That is Judas, the half-brother of Jesus. In Matthew thirteen fifty-five and Mark 6, we're told that Jesus had a half-brother named Judas. He had more than one brother. I'll just read to you one of those passages, Mark thirteen fifty-five. Is this not the carpenter's son, speaking of Jesus? Is, his mother, is, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So these are the half-brothers of Jesus. Half because Jesus did not have an earthly father, but, but they did. They share their, their bloodline with Mary. And in Mark 6, 3... We're also mentioned another brother named Simon. So Judas was either the youngest or the second to youngest of um, Mary's sons. And Mary had other uh, da- she had daughters as well. So when Jude writes, he, he writes to identify himself. He doesn't simply say Jude because there are lots of Jude or Judases. Um, he wanted the church to know exactly which Judas was writing. And so he gives us two other descriptions besides just his name, Jude. The first description is a bond servant of Jesus Christ, or um, in the Legacy Standard Version, a slave of Jesus Christ. He saw himself primarily as a slave of Jesus Christ. He had no problem using that word. 
because he didn't interpret it through like the lens of the American slavery experience, which in some cases, many, many cases was really bad. He is looking at it from the standpoint that Jesus Christ is the good and perfect savior, good and perfect master who supplies everything that is needed. And, and, and like a loving father, in a sense, has, has brought this slave into his family. And so he has no problems using that term. He also uses it to show his complete allegiance to what Jesus Christ says. And additionally, he's, he uses that term to notify his writers that what he is writing is not just his words. This is what he's heard from the master. This is what he's heard from Jesus himself. Jesus is Lord. Now, the second way that Jude describes himself there in verse 1 is a brother of James. And this really helps us kind of narrow things down to know which Judas he's talking about. Because many Judases could possibly say that they were a slave of Christ. Right? There are a few of them that were Christians, and all that is true. But, but keep in mind that, when, that there is a few places in Scripture where people call themselves a slave of Christ. Paul did, Peter did, James did in the book of James, Timothy and Epaphras. So add to that now Jude. Those are the only ones that are specifically called a slave of Christ, although it's true of every particular person. And in those cases when they're being used, it's being used to identify them as a messenger of God's, of God's uh, 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 message to the church. Now, to the second, second way that, that uh, Jude describes himself, the brother of James. So this would imply that the reader's would know who James is because there are also several Jameses. And we won't go through the whole list, but there's really, there's really two Jameses that, that stand out. One of them was the Apostle James. And, and in, in, um, we know from Acts that that James was martyred quite early in the growth of the Christian church. So that James cannot be the, um, the James that he's referring to. The other prominent James is that of the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, who we've already mentioned. And again, James is listed among the Lord's brothers. This James rose to prominence. He was one of the key leaders, if not the key uh, leader of the Jerusalem church. He's very much involved in Acts 15, the discussion about circumcision and whether believers had to obey the Mosaic law in order to be saved or not. So that's the James that we're talking about here. He, he would have known. Just saying James, people's mind within the church, within the region, would have known who James was. So if this is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, the full brother of James, why doesn't he just say, hey, I'm the brother of Jesus or the half-brother of Jesus? Why doesn't he just like, Go for the jugular like many of us would. You're like, well, you know, I'm related, you know. You know, like if you're related to somebody famous, you would, you would kind of let that know, be known, right? Because it kind of elevates your status. But I think there's a strategic reason why both Jude and James didn't do that. One is that neither one of them believed in Christ until after his resurrection. Right? They just didn't believe in him. They were not his followers. And secondly, after the resurrection, Everything's changed, meaning they don't look at the physical lineage anymore. They're looking at the spiritual lineage. 
Jesus said, my, my brothers, my family are those who do the will of God. And so their emphasis really is on that spiritual relationship, not on the physical relationship they had with Jesus. So that's, that's I believe, why he does that. So who are the recipients to this letter? James moves from identifying himself in three ways, his name, uh, being a slave of Christ, a brother of James, to identifying his recipients in three different ways. He doesn't name them specifically. And this is, this is a reason that Jude is known as one of the general epistles. It's general in that it's to the whole church. Um, so it, it, the church isn't named, and he could have, been written to, could have been writing to a specific church or to a region. We're just not told. But he does give very specific descriptions of who he was writing to. And again, we use, uh, he uses uh, really three terms to describe them. And Jude, one of the characteristics of this book, and you can look for it as we go through here, is he loves to speak in threes. He describes things in threes. He gave his name. He gave his status as a slave. He gave his status as a brother of James. And here he's going to give three things as well as a description of those to whom he is writing to. He says, those who are called, beloved in, the, in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So these descriptions form a triad of comforting assurances that, that James wants to, to kind of embed into his listeners as he, at the same time, calls them to contend in the faith. So that's what we're going to dig into. In verses 1 to 2, uh, we see that Jude provides Christians four comforting assurances so that you will be encouraged and fortified to fight for the truth, to contend earnestly for the faith. Four comforting assurances. The first one of these is that believers are the called ones. You see that there in verse 1. To those who are the called. And there is that definite uh, article that's used here, the called. Uh, to, to be called means to be invited. It means to be summoned into the kingdom of God. That's the sense in which Jude is using it here. Jude is not using the term in, in a general sense. There's a general sense, a general call. And we use the word general like that. It means that it's available to all. It's like the word general revelation. It's, it's revelation available to all. If you just look up at the skies, that declares the glory of God. That's general revelation open to anybody. Right? So Jude is not talking about the general call to repentance. And there is a legitimate call that's open to all. We would call this the external call. In Acts 17.30, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, that God is now commanding men that everyone, everywhere, should repent. That, that's, the, that's the general call. Everyone, everyone, everywhere should repent. There's a day of judgment coming. You need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That call goes out to all. It's a legitimate call. And they're, they're be held responsible um, to respond appropriately to that call. Those who don't respond will be held um, liable and be judged by that. Those who do respond to it, receive the kingdom of God, are forgiven and brought in to the family of God. So Jude is not writing to the, the gen, to the, the, in, a, in a sense of a general call, because he is writing about Christians. We're going to talk about them being beloved and being kept. That's not unbelievers. That is definitely believers. That's why we know this is a this is the the uh, a definite call. Um, this is what we call the effectual call. You could also call the called the chosen. Not referring to the movie series, um, that because that has that's outside of the Bible. But we're talking about truly those who've been chosen before the foundation of the earth and in, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. The elect is another way to say that. The, the called. 
Jude is using the term called to refer to those who have been effectually called into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul uses the term in a similar way in Romans 8. So if you would just keep your um, keep a marker there in Jude and, and turn to Romans. Romans 8 is a passage that we uh, often will go to. Uh, so you probably know it well, but. But just listen to what Paul says there in Romans 8.28. Because he uses the word called in the same sense that Jude is using it. And we know that those who love, love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And the word predestined there is not just like a foreknowledge concept. Right? It is a pre-choosing. But those he chose, those he predestined, he called. And that effectual call is the call on the inside that calls sinners to know him. And it is what we call an irresistible call. Right? And that sounds kind of bad because it sounds like someone would want to resist that call. What it means is that God so changes your heart that you don't resist the call. So you want to respond to the call. So he doesn't override your will. He changes your will. That's what he does uh, when he brings someone to faith. Right? Paul used the same the, the term in the same way in 1 Corinthians one twenty four. Just read that for you. He says, For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there are those who are called out. Those are the ones who respond to the gospel and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So this this term called is, is a way to refer to those who are elect from the foundation of the world. And it's interesting that Revelation 22 also uses this term in a similar way. Just listen, uh, Revelation 22, 14. Uh, there we're told, there the uh, angel that was speaking to John relays this message. He says, these, speaking of, he says, these, uh, speaking of the ten kings and of the beast that's reigning at the end. He said, these will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are the called and elect and faithful. Listen to that. Those who are with him are the called and elect and faithful. Right? Beautiful terms. Those aren't three different groups. That's three different descriptions for the same group. Those who are with Christ are faithful. They are elect. They are the called. Now, go, taking this back to Jude, again, just remind ourselves, Jude is speaking about those effectually called into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. They are those who are redeemed. I guess a good illustration of this is when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. Right? To show that he had power to raise the dead, Jesus went to the grave. He allowed Lazarus to, to die and allowed him to be in the grave long enough that his body would begin rotting. And he stood outside that grave. He had them open up the, the tombstone and he stood outside of the grave and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. Instantly, if he had said dead bodies come forth, if he had named everybody that was in that tomb, all of them would have come. But he didn't. He just just one Lazarus. 
So that's an illustration of what we're talking about, the effectual call. The Lord God called you. If you're a believer today, he effectually called you by name. And he worked in your life to draw you to himself so you can be rightly, rightly consider yourself to be the called. And this call is not something you earned. It is not something that, that the Lord looked down the kind of the pipeline of history and said, oh, I kind of like his decisions. Oh, I like that he's evangelizing. I like what he's doing. I think I'll choose him. That is not what he's doing. He chose us unconditionally. Nothing. His love is unconditional. His choosing is unconditional. You are called unconditionally by him. Okay? There's nothing that you did or nothing that you are that caused the Lord that inclined his heart to choose you. He just chose you because of his great love. He chose to set his love upon you and therefore you are the called. Now just think about that. Think about what a blessing it is if you are the called. Right? You've been called by God into a saving relationship by him. He hasn't made a mistake. He's not going to change his mind. But some of you this morning may be thinking about, well, I don't, I don't know if I'm the called. I'll just warn you, that's not for you to figure out. As I said, you will be held accountable for the external call, the call to all, that all people everywhere should repent and believe in Jesus Christ. You are called to respond to that message. And if you do, then you're part of the elect. And if you're not, if you don't respond to that call, then you're not. And you can never, ever say, well, God made me this way. It's not my fault that he didn't call me. It's your fault you didn't respond. And Romans 9 tells us, and we don't take time to go there, but it tells us that really it's the wrong question altogether. How can you, the pot, tell the potter what to do with itself? It's just that, that question is out of your league. You'll never understand it, how God can justly hold someone accountable for their responsibility, for, their, for the, how they respond to the gospel. And at the same time, be sovereign. And at the same time, call those effectually to himself. So, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Paul commands that in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Don't have an outward form of religion, but, but, not, but know nothing of the internal call, of the internal work of the Holy Spirit, helping you to know our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first comforting assurance that Jude provides Christians is that they are the called. If you're in Christ, you are the called. And the next term multiplies the insurance uh, and explains why they are the called. That is, they are beloved in God the Father. Look at that. Uh, they are, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father. Christian, the God who called you is a God who loved you. Jude describes Christians as beloved in God the Father. Now, the King James Version and, New, and the New King James Version uses the word sanctified, but that's based on a less reliable uh, Greek manuscript. The, the word is beloved, and it's decisively supported by solid Greek manuscripts. It, it is the love of God that called us. The, the the, the called are also going to be sanctified, but that's not Jude's point. Jude's point is that they are beloved in God the Father. He describes them as beloved, um, in, beloved in God the Father. But, but notice that he doesn't call them beloved by God the Father. Right? Jude is doing something a little different here. Are Christians 
beloved by God the Father? Of course they are. That's, that, that is um, that's very true. In fact, it, it's very unusual for the wording here. Beloved in God the Father. It's so unusual, even my word checker kept wanting to change the preposition every time I wrote it to by, right? And that's the way that, that a lot of things. And it's true. We are loved by God the Father. But Jude wants to, to point out something here. He wants to use the word in to reference or to indicate the realm of the love. He's not emphasizing the, the act or the person who carries out that love. That's, that's what happens when you use the word beloved by God the Father. That would put the emphasis on the Father doing the action. Here, he's putting the emphasis on the realm of the love. We are beloved in God the Father. So when a person is called and brought into a saving relationship in, in, with the Lord, when he calls them, he brings them into the sphere of his love. Right? That's important because if he brings you into that sphere, then no one can take you out of that sphere. So as, as believers head into battle, they need to know they're called. They need to know that they're in the sphere of God's love. Now, um, one, one commentator highlights well the, the comforting assurance of being beloved by God the Father. He said this, quote, We rest safely in the everlasting arms of our God and Father by virtue of his love and mercy and through the operation of his power and grace. We rest safely in the arms of our God and Father by virtue of his love and mercy and through the operation of his power and grace. Let me give you a little illustration of this, how important this is. In the providence of God, nothing I did. I was born into a family whose fa- who father, a loving father, earthly father, right? He sacrificed for us. He protected us. He provided for us. Yes, imperfectly. He taught us the scriptures. Yes, imperfectly. He wasn't perfect. But I never once had to think, I wonder if I'm going to get kicked out of the family today. Whatever difficulty I was going through, I knew that I was in the family. I never even questioned it. It's something I took for granted, really. Now, many people today don't have that experience, right? And so you can just cast yourself upon the Lord, knowing that, that God himself will be the father you never had. But, but that's what we're talking about here. When you're in the realm of his love, you are in the family. And you're not going to have to worry with, am I going to be kicked out? Am I going to make it to the end? No, you're in the realm of his love. He brought you into that realm. He's not going to take you out of that realm. And there's nothing that you can do or anybody else can do to remove you from that realm. You're there. If you're a Christian, praise the Lord right now for his steadfast love. That even today, no matter what you're going through, what struggles you're facing, pain, or, or trials, whatever tribulations you're going through with, with people at work or family members, or maybe you're just battling your own sin and you're discouraged because of your own sin. Right? The Lord loves you and has you within his realm of steadfast love. He will protect you and care for you, and that will never, ever change. And again, I just plead with those who are not in Christ this morning, or you don't know Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You get into God's family by grace and faith, not anything you could do. You can't clean your life up first and make yourself acceptable to look to look Christian like before you are made part of God's family. No, that would just be like whitewashing a tomb. 
Right? There's no point. You have, you're dead inside and you need to be raised to newness of life. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, right, God will forgive your sins. The Holy Spirit will regenerate you and bring you within the realm of God's love. Right? And there you will remain for eternity. Nothing will change. What a blessed truth that is. So that's the second comforting assurance that Jude provides, that, that they are beloved in God the Father. The third comforting assurance that believers, that Jude provides, is that believers are kept for Jesus Christ. They're kept for Jesus Christ. And, and here again, we're dealing with a little bit of a unique phrase. It's unique to Jude to say kept for Jesus Christ, not kept by Jesus Christ or kept in Jesus Christ. We're going to talk a little bit about that, those differences here in a minute. The, the Holman Christian Bible translates this as, as kept by Jesus Christ. The King James Version has preserved, which is another word for kept, preserved in Jesus Christ. What's, what's the difference? Well, before we talk about the difference, let's talk about the word what kept or preserved means. These the kept or preserves are close synonyms. Preserved is just another way to say kept. And to keep or preserve in this context means to, means to protect. And, and one commentator puts it this way. He says, and I quote, the word stresses watchful care. It denotes the keeping of something as a cherished and priceless treasure, unquote. A priceless treasure brought into the realm of God's love, being called and brought into the realm of God's love, Christians are now a priceless treasure. Okay? Don't get the wrong impression. Don't go to the T.D. Jakes route and say, you know, we're little gods and, you know, elevate yourself. This isn't about you. This, this is about elevating the Lord. This is about all his work in, in our lives. But he considers you a tri- priceless treasure, not because of anything wonderful in yourself, but because of Christ in you, because what Christ has done, what Christ has given you. So, this, this keeping, this protecting is something that God began in the past at the moment of your salvation and continues on. Right? It's just like being within that realm. Right? It, it began in the past at your salvation and it is continuing on to the present. It doesn't, it doesn't end. Now, in, in dealing with the issue of or different translations, like King James Version says, says preserved in Jesus Christ, the Holman Christian Standard Bible uses um, by the, the preposition by Christians are kept by Jesus Christ. All these these different ways of putting the verse are theologically true. So we're not dealing with theological error here, right? Christians are kept by Jesus Christ. First John five eighteen. We know that no one who has been born of God sins, but he who is begotten of God, that's Jesus. He who is begotten of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So Jesus does keep his 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 followers, the children of God. But, but Christians are also preserved or kept in Jesus Christ. John sixteen thirty three. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you may have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So in Christ, we can have peace, we can overcome the world. He preserves us in the world. And then these two ideas of being kept in Christ, kept by Christ, are kind of brought together in the Jesus' prayer in John 17. I'll just read that to you. John 17, verses 11 to 12. He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. Remember, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. 
While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And in fact, I would argue that the, all three ideas are kind of embedded into John 17. We are we are kept by Jesus Christ. We are kept in his name by the father and we are going to be kept for Jesus Christ. Uh, John 17, 15, just a little bit later in that same passage, he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So Jesus' prayer to the Father is that he would keep his disciples, to keep them from the evil one. Now, Jesus always prays in accordance with the Father's will. So this is a prayer that's answered, right? It's a, it's a, it's a prayer that the Father will absolutely answer. And so Jesus is saying, Father, I'm leaving this world. Keep them for me. Keep them to honor him, to honor me. So Christians are kept for Jesus Christ. This, this aligns well with John in John 10, verses 27 and 30, where Jesus says this. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Just think about that. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep come to me. I'm going to keep them. But then he, then he uses a, even a stronger argument. He says, but even if I couldn't, the father who is mightier than me, he, he said, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So there's a sense of which Christians are kept certainly by Jesus Christ, but they're also kept for Jesus Christ. Right. As as the father answers one of Jesus's prayers to be kept uh, for him. So what is Jude saying? They're all theologically correct. I've shown you that. So what is Jude saying? Because when Jude wrote this inspired by the Holy Spirit, what we want to ask ourselves, what did he intend? He had something intended. He did not intend all three of these things. Well, I argue here that it seems best to understand that Jude intends us to understand that believers are kept for Christ, kept for Jesus Christ. Number one, because this aligns well with Jude's benediction. If you would just look it down at verse 24 of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. So who is that that's doing the keeping there? It's the father. Because he says, uh, he specifies to the only God, our savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and forever. Amen. So the Father's doing the keeping. So if he's saying here in, in the beginning of Jude, he kept for Jesus Christ, that would align well with the fact the Father is doing the keeping. The emphasis is we're being kept here as an as a answer to Jesus' prayer, pointing out that believers are kept for Jesus Christ would remind the followers of Jesus, Christians, you and I, of Jesus' prayer to the Father. And again, we know that if Jesus prayed something, it's going to happen. The Father's going to answer it for sure. There's no doubt about it. So I think Jude is specifically pointing to the fact that we are kept for Jesus Christ as an answer to prayer. By, to build our assurance. This comforting assurance that, that by being called, by being beloved in God the Father, in that realm of love, and that by being uh, kept for Jesus Christ, three different ways 
assurance is given to us to comfort us in the face of, of spiritual conflict. Now, there are lots of examples in scriptures about God preserving his people through difficult times. You could just think about Simon Peter. Simon Peter declared his allegiance. He said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever, wherever you go, no matter what, to the ends of the earth. Uh, Jesus said to him, he said, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you. I prayed for you. And he says that your faith will not fail. But after you have turned, go and strengthen your brethren. And that comes from Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. So Peter would have failed if it wasn't for, the, for Jesus intervening by prayer and God sustaining, keeping Peter from ultimate failure. You could make a case that Peter's sin was even greater than Judas Iscariot's sin. Because he denied the Lord three times and he did it with cursings. But the difference is that Peter repented and turned back to Christ. Uh, there's, a, there's an analogy in, in Second Peter uh, that we could go to. Peter knows something about this. But Second Peter uh, chapter 2. I want you to see the, the illustrations of the Lord keeping people through difficult times. Of God keeping his people. I'll just pick up in... Uh, verse 4 of chapter 2 of Second Peter. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and, and did not spare the ancient world, but here you go, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sexual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that unrighteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Right? And he goes on from that. So there's two ideas that, that Peter's dealing with, Second Peter is dealing with. One is the Lord keeping the ungodly for punishment and preserving and keeping, protecting the believers through that time so that their faith would not fail. And he will carry them through that. And Jude is emphasizing the fact that we're kept for Christ. That God the Father will take us through whatever difficulties that we're going through, that he will protect us. He will keep us. Nothing is greater than, than God. And God will protect us. So dear believer, just think of the, the comforting assurance that is, right, of knowing that you are kept by the Father. You're kept. You're preserved. Right? Sometimes we, it's good to examine ourselves. It's commanded in Scripture. But sometimes when you do that a lot, let's say too much, become too introspective, you begin analyzing your faith and you say, I don't know if I really have saving faith. I don't know if I had good enough faith or strong enough faith. And that's where you need to just stop and realize that faith, the faith of salvation is not built upon your subjective faith. It's built upon the faith or trust in God's inerrant and absolute word. You can cast yourself completely on God's promise to save all those who call upon his name. So remember that. Remember that the Lord wants to bring the great comfort to you, knowing that you are kept 
by God the Father for Jesus Christ. There's one more comforting assurance that Jude provides. And he does this in verse 2 in in what's called a, a, a wish prayer. It's his wish, but it's also his prayer. Believers... The, the fourth company assurance is this. Believers are the recipients of three enduring gifts. Believers are the recipients of three enduring gifts. And you see them in verse 2. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Jude's greeting is unique. For only he uses this specific triad. Again, we're dealing with three things again. Jude loves to write. He writes that way characteristically. He, he uses the triad of mercy, peace, and love. And the use of these three terms in Jude is not accidental, it's intentional. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. These three gifts are, are Jude's prayer wishes for his readers because it's what they would need in times of battle as they're contending for the faith. Let's look at these very briefly. Let's look at mercy. In one sense, mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. So that's one, one form of mercy. But a commentator notes the, another part of this. He says, mercy, and I quote, is the compassion that pities the needy and wretched and acts to meet their need. It's compassion. In other words, there's an element of mercy which withholds, say, judgment. But there's another part of mercy that the emphasis is, is probably here is, the, is compassion that, that provides what the needy and the wretched need and, and acts to meet that need. Believers are both the recipients and the dispensers of God's mercy. Having received God's mercy, you and I are called to have mercy on others. In fact, mercy is a word we're going to see again uh, in Jude. We, we read it towards the end, but we will revisit the idea of mercy there. So Jude is, is like kind of bookending his letter with the idea of mercy. Mercy is compassion that pities the needy and wretched and acts to meet their needs. And, and to, this, to this element, uh, this gift, Jude adds peace. Peace is not just tranquility as we looked at last week. Peace in its fullest sense is this, and I just quote MacArthur here, is the presence of righteousness in a relationship to heal, love, bring harmony, and true well-being. So it's just not the absence of conflict. It's bringing righteousness to that relationship to bring healing, to bring harmony, to, to bring true well-being to the person that you're expressing uh, peace to or, or reaching out and being a peacemaker to. As we looked at, God is a God of mercy. He's a God of peace as well. And he expects his people to be peacemakers. Believers have experienced peace, the peace of God and peace with God and are in our best position to be dispensers of that peace. You can't bring the peace, but you can be the channel of God's peace flowing to others. And that's what, what, that's what scriptures call us to. And really what is needed in times of, of spiritual conflict, we, we need that mercy. We need peace. And to that, Jude adds love. The emphasis on this love is not emotions. This is agape love. This is the sacrificial giving of oneself to another for their good. Uh, I like how D. Edmund Hebert explains this type of love. He says this. He says, this love is a deliberate principle of mind and heart which thoughtfully seeks the welfare of others. Read that again. It is a, it is a deliberate principle of mind and heart which thoughtfully seeks the welfare of others. And, and that is the kind of love that we need to have in a conflict. 
the love that we need to have that love for one another within the church. We need to have that kind of love for others that we reach out to. As Jude talks about towards the end of his his um, letter, have mercy on some who are doubting. To have that kind of mercy requires this kind of love. And the source of all these gifts of mercy, of peace, and of love is God. We, we don't conjure this up ourselves. God is the is the generous giver of all these gifts, and he pours them out abundantly on his people, and he wants us to pour them out upon those we minister to, each other uh, first and foremost, but then also to those that we reach out to in the world trying to rescue them. As Jude relays this, this triad of, of gifts, they become like a, a prayer. It's his wish, but it's more than just a wish. It's more than just a positive thought. This is his prayer, even though he doesn't use the word prayer. He prayed this way, right, for, for uh, the Lord's people that he wrote to. And he prayed that these things not that just they would be added, but look at that. What do you say? That they be multiplied to you. You know what the word multiply means. I mean, if you add 10 plus 10, you get what? 20. But if you multiply 10 plus 10, you, or, or 10 times 10, you get what? 100. It's a lot more. So the idea is that these gifts would be abounding in our lives and, and would be overflowing in our lives to those around us. And that's what he's praying for. It, and these are the things that we need in the midst of a battle. See, the, we fight not against flesh and blood. If we were fighting against flesh and blood, the weapons would be totally different. But because we're in a spiritual warfare, we need mercy, peace, and love. Right? Maintain the unity of the body of Christ as we go through the battle. Why? Because, as Jude says, there are some among us who have crept in unnoticed who are secretly leading astray. So they're apostates, but they don't look like apostates. So the tendency would be to turn in on each other, destroy each other. They're like, these are spiritual terrorists. You don't know who they are until they strike. But of course, Jude is going to help us identify their character as we go through this book, the character of these spiritual jihadists. Right? These three spiritual gifts are gifts from God the Father to assure you, to comfort you as you go through the battle of fighting for truth and contending for the, the truth. Listen to how one commentator describes the importance of these three gifts. And I quote, All three of these priceless gifts, mercy, peace, and love, constitute the divine provision needed most in a time when the powers of Satan are directed to the weakening and destruction of our faith. We live in such times. Satan wants to destroy the Lord's church. Satan wants to weaken the Lord's church. Satan wants to destroy the true faith. And Jude in this book is going to call us to contend for that faith. To fight for it. But these gifts of mercy, peace, and love are very much needed in order to help us to fight in the way that God calls us to fight and to do so in a way that honors Jesus Christ our Lord. So that we can hold out Jesus as the friend of sinners and also the Holy Son of God. He brings those two together in perfect harmony. We're to follow him in this battle. Our times in which we live have much doctrinal error. There are many false teachers. So as we go through Jude, I'll be mentioning, not necessarily particularly by name, but appropriately by name, but characteristics and patterns, right? And follow along with Jude and helping you to understand that 
that there are those who have crept in within the visible church today. They look like believers in many regards. They would call upon the name of the Lord. And, and they're not going to wear a uniform that they're with the enemy, but they are with the enemy. And we'll try to draw a distinction between just doctrinal error and, and um, apostates. Right? There's an article in the, in the eBridge that I put out this week that would be helpful towards that uh, podcast by G3. But realize, this is what the Lord calls us to do. Jude's four comforting assurances to Christians. Believers are the called. Believers are the beloved in God the Father. Believers are kept for Jesus Christ. And believers are recipients of the three great enduring gifts, mercy, peace, and love. Like a faithful general, Jude is is trying to rally you to contend earnestly for the faith in a way that honors Jesus Christ, your Lord. And why would you contend earnestly for the faith? Because you are the called. Because you are loved, beloved in God the Father. And because you are kept for Jesus Christ. Because you are the recipients of mercy, peace, and love. You know, when men rushed off the landing craft on the day of Normandy, quite a few of them were injured. Quite a few of them never came home. But because of God's work and God's work alone, you have the tremendous comforting assurance that you're not going to become a casualty in this truth war. The Lord's loving you. The Lord's keeping you and and the Lord is keeping you within the realm of his love. You are called. What a blessed truth that that is. Let's pray. Lord God, what can we say in light of these things? But thank you. We are not deserving of these gifts, of these assurances at all. But you have chosen to pour them out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And hallelujah, what a savior. Oh God, do your work in our lives. Helping us to be people full of mercy. People full of peace and love. People who are reminded of just the assurances you provide of being the called, beloved by you, and also kept by you for Jesus Christ. Oh God, do your work in us individually and as a church, helping us to contend earnestly for the faith once for all.